Welcome to Discovering Music. Uh, today a Discovering Music with a slight difference as we're the guests of Sowerby Music, an unusually enterprising music society in the north of Yorkshire near the town of Thirsk. Not only do they run a full concert life, many other kinds of musical events, they're also involved in some rather impressive educational and evangelical work on behalf of music in the community around here. So it's a great pleasure to meet a group of such keen music lovers, and some of whom have come armed today with some questions, some of them quite challenging, I have to say. With me here in St. Oswald's Church, Sowerby, are the Vihan Quartet to help me explore Beethoven's Quartet in A minor, Opus 132. Opus 132 is one of the so-called late quartets of Ludwig van Beethoven. He wrote it in 1825, that's just with two years to go before he died. But he was only 56 at the time, and he had plenty of plans for what was to come. So we call them late because they are late in terms of his life. Yet somehow or other, the idea seems to have stuck that these are last utterances, that these are the products of a mind that's nearing the end of its career and looking back on what it's achieved with a special rightness and wisdom experience, perhaps. Interestingly, Opus 132 is in five movements. This is the first of Beethoven's string quartets, not in the traditional four movements. And within these five movements, there are many more sudden, sometimes quite startling changes in mood and direction. Now, all of this may be in various ways a possible reflection of Beethoven's condition in 1825. Well, the one thing one has to keep reminding oneself as one listens to this music, that the man who wrote it was completely deaf and had been so for nearly two decades. Also, he was an intensely lonely man. Despite his best efforts, he'd given up many years ago on the prospect of finding a wife. And there'd also been, in recent years, his disastrous attempt to adopt his nephew, Carl, which led to a bitter battle, all of which had ended in disaster. At the same time, there was the apparent complete failure of the democratic political ideals that he'd subscribed to very enthusiastic when he was younger. The defeat of Napoleon in 1815 was one of those watersheds like the coming down of the Iron Curtain in 1989 of the Berlin Wall, when suddenly it seemed that there were no communists anymore. Suddenly Beethoven must have felt very alone with his once democratic ideals in a world that was increasingly repressive and returning to the old order of things. So what could he cling to for hope? Well, Beethoven was a man much given to talking of God, but how devout he was about God and how much he trusted God is another question entirely. And there's very interesting evidence from some of his sketchbooks and his diaries at the end of his life that he was having all sorts of, well, shall we say, modern and liberal, doubtful views about God, and certainly beginning to explore the possibilities of other religions. So it's clear from the start that this was a man in a state of great emotional turmoil. And listening to Beethoven's Opus 132 Quartet, I think you can tell within a very short time that this is a work of great emotional intensity, a work where the drama is personal. We have a very slow, mysterious, but short introduction, and then the emotion really almost explodes in our faces.
the unquestionably troubled beginning of the first movement of the String Quartet, Opus 132, which prompts a question from Jenny Naisbitt. I found the first movement discordant and challenging to listen to. Is this discordance unique to Beethoven and his internal demons, or are there any other contemporary examples? It's interesting that you should say that. I mean, even from that short example, I think most of us got to the idea of a composer who was really relishing dissonance, the abrasive hard edges, chords that clash, notes that clash. It's certainly not unique to Beethoven. In fact, I remember years ago a music teacher of mine saying, play any piece of Bach keyboard music and just play the first notes of each bar. And what you often find is that they're quite excruciating dissonances. But because of the way Bach resolves them, the pain is very short-lived, and you experience immediately the pleasure of the dissonance being resolved. So there has to be an element of dissonance for Concord to mean anything, otherwise it's just bland. What's really striking about this first movement is the way that Beethoven uses dissonance. Now, I, I'm also interested that you singled out the first movement, Jenny, because the third movement, the slow movement, the movement that Beethoven called Heiliger Dankgesang, a sacred song of thanks to the Godhead, is pretty staggering sometimes in the dissonances it used. For example, here's a passage from near the climax of the movement. There are some pretty grueling discords here. He even manages to make that last chord sound like a dissonance, and it isn't. It's a perfectly normal, straightforward major chord, but it sounds so abrasive in context. But I take it, Jenny, that it was particularly the first movement that struck you in this way from the quartet. Is that what you're saying? Yes, it was, and I think it was really... It was unlike the Beethoven that I'm used to, and I think as the piece progressed, maybe my ear got more in tune with the way he was presenting the music. But it is also quite striking the way he uses dissonance in this first movement, particularly for the way it clearly is meant to express pain in some way or other. There are some parts of the first movement where I think you can sense muscles contracting and contorting with pain. You watch the faces of the players as they play it at the Vihan Quartet today, and they, they're doing that kind of concentrated, even grimacing expression sometimes that you associate with people who are experiencing a sharp pain. Let's just hear a little bit from later on in the first movement. Again, just, just listen to the way that Beethoven uses the dissonances, the way he accents them, the way he stresses them, and the way they're put about the texture, as it were, so that they hit you from different directions at the same time. It's very striking.
it's not just the sort of edgy, extraordinary harmonies as well. In fact, none of them are quite as jagged as the ones in that passage we heard from the central slow movement. It's the scoring, isn't it, as well? It's the way that, for instance, the high cello clashes with the first violin at the beginning. It's so exposed. Then, as, as we approach the climax of that passage, it was also evident the way the violin makes these extreme melodic leaps, much more than you'd expect to find in, say, his precursors, Mozart and Haydn. They add strain, and strain for the players becomes a vital expressive element in Beethoven's music. It's something that's absolutely characteristic. Putting the players up against it, giving them a, a real physical obstacle to overcome, is part of how he achieves his expressive effect. Could I ask the leader, Leos Czepitsky, to give us an example of that, please? That leaping forward and backwards across the string, and certainly for a player in Beethoven's time, that would have been very taxing indeed, and not what they're used to. And it gives it that almost expressionist quality of intensity. If you can imagine someone's talking, and their voice is leaping up to the top of the range and then plunging down the next moment, you get the impression someone was talking about something at the maximum level of intensity. And so that Beethoven does that in combination with such a distant musical language really takes us quite close to the edge in terms of emotional expression. I talked about Bach earlier, resolving dissonances very quickly. Beethoven will often delay resolving dissonances. Just where you think that it might happen, for instance, at the climax of this passage, Beethoven suddenly pulls back to pianissimo, the dynamic drops, and again, there's more uncertainty, and still you feel these harmonies haven't quite resolved. They haven't quite come to rest. There's a restlessness going on. The pain hasn't been immediately resolved. You think at that point, right, he might be about to come back into the home key, but even then he doesn't do it. Even then he keeps you waiting. Only at the very end of the movement do we come back to the home chord. And even then it sounds almost too perfunctory to be a complete resolution. So all the way through this movement there's a sense of tension which is never fully resolved, which I think is definitely what he's intending to express. You feel this is somebody personally telling you about what he's experienced. Beethoven himself was a sort of early exponent of what we now call music therapy. He played for people, in, particularly in emotional distress, and improvised for them and sometimes noticed from the way he played that he was able to bring peace and comfort to some of these people. A lady called Dorothea Ertmann, for whom he wrote one of his piano sonatas, was deep in depression. Beethoven played for her, and she said her being taken through her feelings by Beethoven and feeling a resolution was something that helped her come to terms with her emotions. But here, what he wants us to do is almost that he doesn't want us to be resolved. He doesn't want to resolve that feeling. He wants us to be taken to the extreme of pain to the point where it feels maybe that there isn't a resolution which is one of the things that makes this music so drastic, I think, in its effect. But anyway, I think it's time we moved on to another question. We have um, David Bowman of Sowerby. Why are there five movements rather than the traditional four in this quartet? I think one possible reason is that that central slow movement, the movement he called the Heilige Dankgesang, the holy or sacred song of thanks to the deity for, for recovery from sickness, is central to the work emotionally, and he also wants it to be central to the work structurally as well. So here is this big central slow movement framed by two highly contrasted pairs of movements on either side, so that you have a kind of A 
BCBA structure. What's interesting is that this arch structure is actually contained very strongly and very clearly within the slow movement because you have two highly contrasted kinds of music here. First of all, there's this clearly very devotional opening. The quiet, relatively flowing strings introduce what's obviously a hymn-like theme, very clearly a hymn, I think, in effect. And that is contrasted extremely with a very different kind of music, which Beethoven introduces with the minimum possible transition. So he goes straight from that devotional mood into this. Beethoven marks that little theme, Neue Kraft fühlend, with feeling of new strength, feeling of new energy. So this is obviously the recovered state. If you like, we have the devotional state, the before, as it were, in that hymn-like music at the beginning, but asking for deliverance from pain. And then the feeling of new strength and the celebration in this very contrasting theme that follows at a faster tempo. And these two musics, these two kinds of music, alternate regularly throughout the slow movement so that it makes a huge A, B, A, B, A structure. So again, you have an arch within an arch. Very appropriate to be talking about arches in a Norman church. But there you have it. On the one hand, this is an incredibly symmetrical very regular, very beautifully balanced structure. On the other hand, that beautifully balanced structure is used to contain extremes which are so extraordinary that actually sometimes they make you doubt the unity of what you're hearing. It's, it's, it's kind of rather arresting just how much it seems Beethoven is prepared to introduce in the form of contrast within this seemingly symmetrical structure. But I think there's another possible answer as to why there might be five movements as well. And in this case, I'd like to bring in somebody else, I think, who has a question, which I think also relates to this. Have we got Lindy Davidson here? Ah, please. Uh, the change of mood between movements four and five is so abrupt, it almost sounds like a mistake by Beethoven. I'd love to know if there is an explanation for it. 
I think there's quite an interesting answer to this question, which ties into the whole business of why there are five movements. Now, we've had that beautiful devotional slow movement, which ends with the opening hymn-like material transfigured into something so incredible, quietly ecstatic. It's, it's music that seems to come from another age. It's extraordinary music. It could almost be contemporary. Something maybe from one of today's religious composers. It has a completely different quality to it. After this, however, the beginning of the fourth movement comes as quite a shock, actually. Now, I remember the first time I heard that. I didn't know the quartet was in five movements. All I had was the record, and I put it on. And I remember thinking, this can't be the finale. Surely they've put the wrong piece on here. This sort of jaunty little march, off we go, chaps. After this beautiful, extraordinary, otherworldly, transcendent slow movement, what is Beethoven doing? Surely he can't think this would make an adequate finale. And we get each phase of the theme repeated, and you're just beginning to think, well, maybe that is what Beethoven's thinking. Maybe, after all, he thinks this is an adequate finale to the quartet we've just heard. And just when he's got you to that stage of thinking, yes, this really is the finale, he springs a little surprise. on earth is this melodramatic operatic thing with those almost hackneyed tremolos in the background what on earth is this doing in the middle of this jaunty march finale in inverted commas why has he done this it's one of those things that really catches you up doesn't it what's happened is there an element of irony or mockery here i think there is a reason why beethoven's done this and actually it's almost in the nature of a kind of private joke and i think this is one point where it really does help if we know a little bit more about the background of this quartet and what he might have been thinking of. Because Beethoven gives us a pretty hefty clue if we're in the know. We'll just hear the violin phrase as it comes in with that recitative. Now, how many of you know Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or have heard it? Those of you who don't, we've done a little bit of arranging here. We've managed to scale Beethoven's colossal choral symphony down for four strings. Here's an equivalent passage in the finale of the Ninth Symphony. The style's so different that you may not have noticed the similarity, but if you point it out, bum, 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 it's the same phrase in both pieces, isn't it? Now, that can't have been an accident. Beethoven only did this twice, as far as I can remember, interrupt the flow of a movement suddenly with an instrumental recitative. You find recitatives more often in opera or oratorio than in instrumental pieces. This is where the voice sings, but in the rhythms of speech, freely so that it sounds something close to a kind of heightened speech. Now, in the Ninth Symphony, what you had is this violent, dissonant beginning. Then the cellos and basses begin this recitative, and gradually we hear each of the movements of the Ninth Symphony recapitulated and dismissed, as it were, by the cellos and basses. Then we hear a shadowing of the Ode to Joy, the famous Ode to Joy theme. 
Then all the opening comes back again, and then a bass sings the same line that we've heard, this recitative. Oh, Freunde, nicht mehr dieser Turner. Oh, friends, enough of these sounds. Let's tune ourselves to something pleasanter. And then the Ode to Joy theme begins again, and Beethoven begins his great hymn to democracy and freedom in the finale. Here, quite the opposite seems to happen. We've got quite a jointy, jolly beginning to the finale, which sounds almost like what the Beethoven would call the Bundeslied, the Brotherhood March, one of those marches that socialist bonds or democratic groups used to, to sing to each other to, to keep themselves going. A touch of the French revolutionary style is dismissed by the violin, which seems to say again, oh friends, no more of these sounds. And it leads into something completely different. That's the beginning of the fifth movement, the real finale of Opus 132. Now, what's interesting about that theme is that Beethoven derived it very closely from a sketch he wrote originally for the finale of the Ninth Symphony. So when he was still at the stage of thinking that his Ninth Symphony was going to be a purely orchestral symphony, that was the theme he had in mind as its orchestral finale, a tragic finale, clearly. Somewhere along the way, Beethoven seems to have had the idea of reviving an old project that he dreamed up years ago of setting Schiller's Ode to Joy and transforming the nature of the Ninth Symphony so that it ends with this great hymn to freedom. But there are signs, in fact, there are more than signs, there are strong indications that not long after the first performance of the Ninth Symphony, Beethoven began to have severe doubts as to whether he'd done the right thing ending the Ninth Symphony with the choral finale. Well, if so... Is this a sort of Ninth Symphony take two? In other words, the reverse happens. We start with a jaunty song of brotherhood. We sound with something hopeful, something marching forward in a very jolly and positive sort of way. This, however, doesn't convince any of us. We're sitting there wondering, what on earth is this doing after that sublime slow movement? And we've hardly got our ears used to it when suddenly in comes this recitative. Oh, friends, no more these sounds. And then we get the theme Beethoven originally intended for the finale of the Ninth Symphony, a tragic theme, an unmistakably tragic theme. It's almost as though he's saying, Ode to Joy, take two. And it's almost as though, in this case, we've actually got a pretend finale and then the real finale. The Ninth Symphony is the only work Beethoven wrote after the final defeat of Napoleon in 1815, which in any way reflects his former democratic utopianism. And he really must have felt like a lone voice, isolated in a world that didn't want to know anything about democracy, didn't want to know anything about Napoleon, just forget all those wars, forget all that nonsense about liberty, fraternity, inequality, and let's get back to the reassuring old order. Well, this was a world in which people seemed to want to be more interested in Italian opera than in Beethoven's music, and in which Beethoven himself, I was amazed to discover the other day, actually had a secret police file on him because he was felt to be dangerous. The secret police file actually reports with glee that the Ninth Symphony was not the success that Beethoven had hoped to be. 
So this is the kind of climate he's living in. Death, lonely, with very few people around who he felt shared the way he was looking at. Maybe he felt that the Ninth Symphony wasn't even credible to him at this point. And so he has another go at composing that transition in the finale, the other way round. We start with the optimism. The optimism isn't good enough. The recitative rejects it. And then we have, well, this was the tragic theme I first thought of. Let's let that run its course. This is Discovering Music. I'm Stephen Johnson. And today we're guests of Sowerby Music, looking at Beethoven's Opus 132 String Quartet. Question from Jill Bowman. Jill Bowman? Yes. Why does the chord at the end of the third movement sound so inconclusive? I, I can remember when I first heard this quartet thinking exactly the same. Obviously, I've heard it so many times now, I'm kind of prepared for that. Now, this is a very technical point, but I'm going to try and explain it as lucidly and directly as I possibly can, given that I know some of you are musicians and some of you aren't. So we'll try and put this in as simple terms as possible. Because it's not just a technical point. It's actually vital, I think, to the emotional meaning of this movement. The clue is in the title of the movement. It's a sacred song to the Godhead on the return to health, a song of thanks in the Lydian mode. Now, this is one of these places where Beethoven looks forward by looking to the music of the past. And in his own time, this would be the very remote past, because in Beethoven's time, people weren't actually aware of music much before their own day. There weren't recordings for a start, and it wasn't often played. And the church music of the Renaissance masters, like Palestrina, was known to very, very few people indeed. But Beethoven was very interested in that kind of thing. And in those composers, or like the Tudor composers in this, com in this country, Bird and Talis, the use of modes rather than the normal major and minor scales is something that's absolutely fundamental to the music. So, right, let's have a bit of theory. We're going to start with the basic scale of this slow movement. The slow movement is in F major, technically. Here is the kind of scale of F major you'd expect to hear if you heard a violin student practicing in the room next door. That's just the basic scale of F major. The Lydian mode begins and ends on F, but with one slight note difference. The fourth note of the scale is a semitone higher. It's sharp. It sounds like this. It gives the scale a slightly strange and unfamiliar tug upwards halfway through. Now, the hymn sections, the A sections of this movement, Beethoven doesn't use any sharps or flats. Now, that's not quite true. He does use the odd judicious sharp at the end of some of the sections to make the transition. But for the bulk of these sections, it's just the white notes on the piano. Now, the white notes on the piano make you think of C. But this is a movement that's supposed to be in F. And all the way through the movement, you can feel that tug, da, 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 pulling you upwards away from the note of the scale. Now, I've done something unbelievably daring and dangerous and possibly stupid here, reckless, for which, if Beethoven's listening, huge apologies. It's only intended to show you how good you are. But what I've done is I've rewritten part of the slow movement of Opus 132 near the end, so that instead of those jarring, strange, upward-tugging B naturals, we have B flats. Da, 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 da. 
that was an F major piece that behaved like a proper F major piece and ended on the right chord. But we'll just take the beginning of that passage and show you what Beethoven actually wrote with all those B naturals instead of B flats. Now I think maybe you'll feel that tug upwards towards something that's never quite reached. That time it felt that move back wasn't the home key at all, didn't it? Strange, that tug upwards to somewhere that's never quite achieved, that longing for something which nevertheless has to come back to earth at the end and you don't feel it's quite right. Surely that's part of what gives this this amazing aspiring towards transcendence that nevertheless somehow doesn't quite materialise. It's brilliant and he was doing this at a time when nobody else was playing around with church modes like that. This piece is 200 years old, nearly, and still it goes on challenging the way we perceive things. Um, another question here from Martin Hooper, though, on another subject entirely. Well, seemingly this quartet has a recurring thematic four-note statement, G-sharp A, F-E. Yes, actually, um, Martin, I'll tell you what, just uh, at this point, maybe we can just get the leader of the Vihan Quartet just to play that figure for us, G-sharp A, F-E. I can hear that uh, right at the start in the cello, obviously, but uh, I, I fail to hear it uh, later on. Can someone tell me where to find it and, and, you know, and help me towards it, please? Well, I'm very glad you said seemingly <laughs> it has this unifying device, because I absolutely agree with you. I, I, I can't see this alleged unity that this theme is supposed to give to Opus 132. Certainly there are elements later on in the quartet which you can see deriving it from some way or other. For instance, when we hear it at the beginning of the quartet, it does sound like the kind of motto theme. Surely this is the kind of idea that's going to be seminal. Everything's going to grow from this. So many interesting ways in which this quartet suggests that that conventional idea of unity, that everything derives from one seed, everything grows from one premise, as in logic, that that's just not what Beethoven's doing here. And actually, he's consciously striving to do something else. For instance, that da 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 it's much more obviously like the figure that begins the finale of the Opus 130 quartet, the so-called Grossa Fuga. Hear it for yourselves. This really sounds like a derivation of that same motif. 
this is a different work. And then something else rather interesting happens in the minuet-like second movement, which we haven't heard anything from yet, so it's a good chance to sample it. There's a gorgeous, ethereally scored trio section, which we'll hear a little bit of in a moment, but it's interrupted gruffly by this figure on the viola and the cello. There's a really crucial little figure there, which I'd just like our viola and cello to pick out for us, please. That is, note for note, the beginning of the Opus 131 quartet, quartet in C-sharp minor, which begins with exactly the same notes. And as though to underline that its presence in this Opus 132 quartet is some kind of intruder, that it doesn't quite belong here, Beethoven has it come back again, but in the wrong meter. Now, this is something, again, which is very strange for a composer of that time. We're in a movement in 3-4, 1-2-3, 1-2-3. Three. Suddenly, just for a couple of bars, it goes into 1-2-1-2-1-2-1-2, as though Beethoven is actually saying, this really isn't part of this movement. Believe me, it belongs somewhere else. And then suddenly, we're back into the ethereal violin tune, as though nothing had happened. context of that ethereal, beautiful violin tune, it becomes even more startling. What's this, this intruder doing, suddenly muscling in, elbowing his way in, in the wrong key, in the wrong texture, in the wrong tempo, the wrong meter, and belonging to another quartet entirely? I, this, I just wonder if this isn't another of Beethoven's cosmic teases. You know, the, one of the ideas that I was always taught at university was that in his great, particularly in his great Germanic works, what you have is a musical seed. The theme is a musical seed. It's kind of, it gives you the DNA from which only one possible plant can grow. Uh, this is shown inexorably logically to be the fruit that is produced in this work. It's as though Beethoven's saying, well, ha, to that, I've actually grown three very different trees from identical seeds. And it's all part, I think, of the things that makes this music so paradoxical, so enigmatic, and keeps us listening to it and coming back to it. Uh, something I remember discovering, that on one of his earlier songs, Klager, a lament, there's a great big marginal note he's written, and he's written some things about it. And underneath, he's written these extraordinary words, vielleicht ist das Gegenteil auch wahr. Perhaps the opposite is also true. And there are always moments, it seems to me, in so many of Beethoven's great works, where he seems to say, well, perhaps the opposite is also true. And that's one of them. Yes, this work is logical. Yes, it does make sense. But perhaps, no. Perhaps it doesn't. Perhaps life doesn't make sense. And I am now so confident as my power of composer, I'm even going to put that jarring, dissonant thought into this piece and see if it'll hold together in spite of that. Uh, we have a question that I think will quite do as a, a rather nice finale wrap-up question, possibly, from uh, Mrs. Dorothy Oldfield. Yes? Am I right in thinking that Opus 132 seems to be a battleground between profound thought 
and intimate emotions, revealing Beethoven's struggle between rebellion at his deafness and a growing realization that he has within himself something that transcends his circumstances. Is there a recurring theme of calm, acceptance, and a certainty of who he is? I think that's quite a profound question, actually, Dorothy. Um, and I'm glad you said that he has within himself something of this. I think what Beethoven's struggles, particularly with his religious beliefs, suggest, he was looking at translations of Eastern scriptures, for instance. He was looking at the Bhagavad Gita. Um, he was looking at Middle Eastern religious texts, Zoroastrianism. And in one of his notes, he says, he puts uh, rather enigmatically, Socrates equals Christ. So he's beginning to think in all sorts of ways. E even the use of the word Godhead, Gottheit, in the slow movement of the... That's not conventional Christian terminology. That's more the kind of word that the Freemasons would have used. And let's remember that in Beethoven's time, the Freemasons were a deeply subversive left-wing organization, repressed very vigorously by the conservative authorities that reigned after the defeat of Napoleon, certainly in Central Europe, in Vienna. I come back to that thing, perhaps the opposite is also true. You listen to a piece like the Eroica Symphony, and you listen to the first movement to think this is one of the profoundest and most amazing demonstrations of musical logic in the business. Everything feels so inevitable. You're carried forward on a tide in which every note seems to be created by the previous one, and then hand over to the one that follows. There's a superb sense of inevitable momentum going on, a wonderful, unstoppable current. But even then, at the climax of that movement, the first movement comes the moment where the, the theme bam, 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 is handed over to the trumpets. Now, you'd have thought this would be the triumphant moment. But Beethoven does something very odd in his score. He has the trumpets miss the top note. Dum, 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 bam, 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 bam. And a lot of conductors have been really cross with him for this. And they've corrected it and thought, well, maybe he was being cautious. But a trumpeter in his time could easily have played that, as he was well aware. It's almost as though even at that relatively early stage in his career, when he still believes that democracy is a possibility, he's written in the possibility of failure. The last moment you reach for the stars and you can't quite reach. And I think what happens in these very late works is that Beethoven says, okay, so the world is full of terrible contradictions and riddles. It is impossible to understand how a benign and benevolent God can permit the suffering that goes on in this world. The devastation of Vienna that he saw during the bombardment, the, the wreckage of Europe, and permitting a man who's devoted his life to his service in art to be deaf. You know, one can sense this. You know, Beethoven asking, why have you made me deaf? What on earth is your idea with this? That there are things that don't have answers. There are things we can't find answers to. There are riddles that ha won't be solved. And that he's coming, and I'm fascinated at him to discover he was interested more and more in Buddhist scriptures in his later years, because the idea of being able to accept riddles that can't be answered, tensions that can't be resolved, is something that's central to the Buddhist concept of mindfulness. That you don't try to solve a problem, you just, as it were, hold the problem and contemplate it for itself. I feel that there's something of that in this late movement of Beethoven, that he's saying, actually, life is full of these things that don't make sense. Can you embrace that? Can you live with that? Then perhaps you can be at peace. He knows that there is more in humanity than just an animal 
with a highly developed cerebral cortex. He knows that there is something inside of all of us that gives us a meaning that's beyond our circumstances and beyond greed and beyond desire and beyond need and selfishness. He knows there's something holy inside all of us. Maybe it's God, maybe it's not God, but there is something. The awareness of it sometimes is only intermittent. But I think that's what you sense for me in this quartet. You sense intense pain. You sense confusion. You sense dislocation. You sense irony, bleakness, even tragedy at the beginning of the finale. But then there are these moments when you sense something else. And it's impossible to explain analytically how he does this. It's just there somehow, I think, in this music. And certainly if it's that serenity of being able to say, well, perhaps the opposite is also true. I don't think there's any work of his that says that for me as profoundly as Beethoven's Opus 132. So it's over now to the members of the Wiehan Quartet for a complete performance of Beethoven's String Quartet in A minor, Opus 132. <laughs>